Smug walked in, it was a global pandemic. People in their homes teaching academics. He didn't pay any it, no mind. Kept right on drinking, having good time. And after one round of old Corona, he had shallow breathing and called it jet lag. And after two rounds with old Corona, Delta this time and it was a drag. And after three rounds with old Corona, Smug brings it around like a travel bag. Republicans seek to take control of the House of Representatives. Republicans are going to retake both the House and Senate. A liberal MSNBC host warning Democrats about the potential for a red wave. Do we have any sort of canary in the coal mine type indications of where we may be headed on that front? Fox News is calling the Virginia governor's race for Republican Glenn Youngkin. You and I have a rendezvous with destiny. We'll preserve for our... <laughs> fellas, Oh, that might have been our best vocal performance in quite some time. It was great. I loved loved singing it. Oh, so this is this is in, I think, with great respect to our good friend Smug, who is apparently suffering once again. Yeah, I mean, well, he's the undefeated champ of of Rona. <laughs> uh, longtime listeners of the Variety Program will remember an early episode uh, where Smug went to Egypt. And had to record from some sort of bomb shelter to bring uh, our listeners the great content that you crave. He returned from that trip. Not in great shape. Not well. Not good. <laughs> not good. And he called it jet lag, but we all knew it was it was Rona. Now he had the he had the good sense to quarantine himself for several weeks, right? So as not to spread his jet lag. Yeah, right. <laughs> but right. but that was part of the problem, right? I mean, he was he was very, very sick. And then and then you'll recall a couple weeks before our Iowa trip. Yeah. He came down with the Delta. Yeah. And and now he has let us all know via the Twitters and then personally, he has again struck in with s- some kind of significant illness. I mean, it's definitely this Omicron new variant, right? <laughs> like it has to be. And and Matt, one of our producers, made a great observation uh, that I have to share. And that is, you know, I mean, on the Thanksgiving episode, if you haven't listened to it, go back and listen to that thing at some point. I think it was pretty hilarious. But Smug's Thanksgiving plan was to go to the Bass Pro Shop Pyramid in Memphis, Tennessee. Yes. Fantastic place. He got Rona in Egypt. The OG uh, variant. The OG variant. Yeah. So now he's he's been to two pyramids and come back both times with Rona. It's the curse of the pharaohs, folks. <laughs> he has unlocked some dark magic in within those pyramids that is causing him to get the Rona. <laughs> So we wish our co-host all the best as he is getting better. Uh, I'm told today he is eating again for the first time in several days, which is a positive development. But, you know, not we'll never miss an opportunity. The show goes on. The show goes on. So here we are. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, man. All right. So let's start with the first of all, uh, I hope your Thanksgiving went well. My Thanksgiving uh, was great. It was a good family, small gathering, just you know, in my home, we didn't have to put into practice any of the advice that we had provided. Uh, it was relatively uneventful in that regard. Although I did appreciate all the people who reached out on Twitter and whatnot 
talking about the advice and why it was useful. I appreciated oh, yeah. that. I saw a uh, a Brandon uh, nameplate tag. So good. So good. <laughs> so good. We loved it. We love doing those. But honestly, those are our the most fun yeah. for us to do. We just let it all loose. <laughs> Drink a bottle of tequila. And, yeah. You know, try to be the most outrageous as we can. And I, I think it worked. It was very funny. At least we got a lot of great feedback. So let's read a couple of five stars, shall we? Yeah, let's do it. Here, uh, the first one from Mike home uh title is greatest thanksgiving advice ever ruthless provided me with the greatest thanksgiving advice ever thursday was my first introduction to my girlfriend's family oh my gosh (laughs) (laughs) i failed to punt the turkey but did find my own victory i convinced a three-year-old to rub yams in her hair quote look mom i'm orange like trump if there is a wedding in our future it just got a lot cheaper (laughs) none of these none of those people Will ever be in my presence unless forced to. Even better, I was shunned by the adults but loved by the children. I I can only imagine the contortions the parents are going going through to vilify me. Not only did Ruthless guide me through owning the libs, but now we are creating future cons. Genius. <laughs> I love I it. I love that. I love it's it. always a good play to ingratiate yourself with the family, with the children. Yeah. Like they can't they can't talk shit about you too hard if you're the one entertaining the children. If the kids like you you're in. You're in. You're in. Uh, all right. This one's from Magic Mangold. You guys keep me going. Been a fan of the program, variety program, since episode one. And I love listening on my way to class. Or in Hayden, forks up, Mr. Holmes. I would pay to intern from you. Well, let's think about that. Let's think about let's that. Let's think about that because there could be an opening. Uh, a lot of time at a large state school like ASU. He's talking about Arizona State, my alma mater. Forks up forks up you can be made to feel crazy about being a conservative that cares about people they think this is impossible people have been so brainwashed that some of the takes that i hear would make jen rubin jealous (laughs) seriously though you guys cut through all the noise and deliver a clear but entertaining message that helps me feel confident in my beliefs and the difference i can make rating 505 the three of you have such a great way of accenting each other while bouncing back from important stuff to fun stuff. I hope this show never ends. Yeah, wow, that's great. He really encapsulated the whole reason we made Ruthless in the first place. Totally. You know, the guy gets it. He totally gets it, and it's for people like that. Toss it on on your way through campus. Watch the demonstrations with a smile on your face. Right. Right? And you get to be entertained. <laughs> we'll narrate it all for you. <laughs> um, so I want to start Dunks with a... Uh, I don't know if it's quite a victory lap yet, but it's certainly progress. Okay. You'll recall a several weeks ago, Count Chocula came before us. Yeah, this is the, the nominee for Treasury? Yeah. Yeah. It's the, uh, what's her, Saul Omarova? Count Chocula cereal is coming your way. How about the monster for breakfast today? <laughs> <laughs> it's a great soundboard, Count Chocula. <laughs> I just, it was such a perfect way. Of encapsulating. Well, now, according to the Wall Street Journal, five Democratic senators announced they will not support Saul. Oh, no. Uh, no. Oh, no. I'm so I'm so sorry. I can't believe that a devout <laughs> communist from Russia is not going to be our in charge of our monetary policy. <laughs> I mean, are you kidding me? Yeah. I can't believe it took us to, to hammer on this I, to make this a big deal. It is just incredible. I mean, not a lot of people were talking about this at all. And you know, I mean, the the Marxist graduate uh, thesis and stuff. I mean, like this is 
if you were looking through someone's oppo file and you saw this you'd be like game over but what? this person got the not was was nominated i know what, what were they thinking I mean, you can't. There isn't some woke banker out there that's just like a run-of-the-mill person that could. I mean, why did they pick the Russian, the Le- the Lenin scholarship? <laughs> what were they thinking? It's it almost is is an example of like we've talked a lot about. We had an old bet going whether one of us would ever be a part of an administration that was in in charge of of presidential personnel. Do you remember this, Ashbrook? I do. And and we had a bet like if ever, any one of us was ever in charge of it, what are what's the most outrageous person that you could get confirmed? And we like we had all kinds of different point systems that we would talk about. Could, that, could you convince Warren Buffett to take the commerce job? That's like, <laughs> the, that's like that's right. the ultimate. That was one of them is like, could you convince a billionaire with absolutely the best life of all time to take like a sub tier cabinet? Job, right. 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 But like another part of it was, could you get somebody wholly unqualified or against like interest? Like, could you get that person nominated? Yeah. Right. Of course, we wouldn't do this. But Democrats, I think, may have put this into practice. Like, that, how else do you I explain think this? I think you're exactly right. There's a point system. That there's we don't a know bet about. in presidential personnel. There's a bet. There's got to be. They're like, I bet you I can get a mar- an avowed Marxist who did a thesis on Lenin who hates the American capitalist system to be in charge of monetary policy. What you treasury. Think? Yeah, treasury. It'd be like no, making... It'd be like making a Quaker the the uh, in charge of DOD. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's just so good. Well, look, progress has been made. Progress has been made. On a point that is not progress in any shape or form was the news over the weekend about the Omicron variant. Yeah. Um, I got a lot to say about this. I got a ton to say. But let's talk about the name of it first. Right. So they skipped over, you know, this is all Greek alphabet. Greek alphabet, yeah. Right, which you know quite well. Oh, I do, yes. Did you want to do it? You want me to do it? Yeah, do it, just because you're you're an advanced man of great education. Uh, Alpha, beta, gamma, delta, how does it go? Alpha, beta, gamma, delta, epsilon, zeta, eta, theta, iota, kappa, lambda, mu, nu, xi, omicron, pi, rho, sigma, tau, oops, um, phi, chi, psi, omega. Yeah. I think we just lost 30% of our audience. (laughs) I don't think so. Greek life strong. Greek life strong. People know it. You have to know it with a match in your hand. Yeah, you got to light the match. And it can't burn your finger. You got to be able to recite the whole thing. Yeah, spit it all out before. That's right. So that's a, an old hazing technique that Michael will. Uh... I loved getting hazed. <laughs> <laughs> it builds character. The old man knows so much. He does, and, and some of it's come under great adversity. It really. <laughs> <laughs> and, and a lot of what he is like a living, breathing Google machine. <laughs> he is, but the reason why the Greek alphabet is. I guess applicable to this situation is because they skipped right over new. Right. That kind of makes sense though. Right. New variant. People would hear that and they'd be like new. new. Yeah. Right. It's just, although it is new. So, but it's, you know, apparently if that thought was bad communication. Yeah. You know what else they skipped? Zai. Yeah. Do you know how, uh, because that, she, be- yeah, it, it's X I. Right. And it looks like she, right. Can't do that. Can't can't offend the guy who brought us the virus. (laughs) No, no, that would be bad diplomacy. The people that covered up the pandemic in the first place. 
the people reporting fake coronavirus data for the last 16 months. We can't offend those people. But we're not joking here. This is no. this is real stuff. That's they skipped real. over new because it uh, ostensibly we're we're applying what we think their motives were. Yeah. Because it sounded new and then they skipped Jai. Yeah. Which is the exact same spelling as she. Right. Uh, yeah, the leader of communist China. So why would you do that unless that was just sort of a thing? Yeah. Right? Well, that's the thing. This is what we're dealing with, folks. <laughs> right from the very beginning. This is the World Health Organization that doesn't want to offend the origin of the coronavirus. I mean, I think I think the World Health Organization is corrupt. I think they're in the pocket of communist China. And I get some of that's self-interested. If that's where this stuff is going to originate, like they're trying to work with the regime as it exists so they can get access. I understand that. Right. You know, because like if it is if it if you're getting this stuff coming from a wet market or I don't know, you know, a lab in China, right. you know, you want to make sure you can have access to it. But there's a difference between like accommodating and then just selling out to a regime that held back critical information at the beginning of this pandemic that cost Millions of lives. Well, it continues to into a point where we actually don't know the full story. The CIA investigated and couldn't find anything, right? They're inconclusive report because they can't get any information. Right. Which, you know, don't get me started on all that. But in response to all of this, the Biden administration wants to wants to appear like they were all over it. Right. So they march the old man out and says that he's banning travel, apparently, to all kinds of African countries that have had reported uh, examples of this Omicron Virus. Here is Jen Psaki attempting to explain why uh, stopping travel from African countries is not a racist, xenophobic thing, but the Trump administration banning travel to Asia was. Thank you, Jen. Before Joe Biden was president, he said that COVID travel restrictions on foreign countries were hysterical xenophobia and fear mongering. So what changed? Well, I would say first to put it in full context, Peter, what the president was critical of was the way that the former president put out, I believe, a xenophobic tweet uh, and how he called that what he called the coronavirus uh, and and who he directed it at. The president has not been critical of re- travel restrictions. Racist. We have put those in place ourselves. We put them in place ourselves in the spring. But no, he does not believe, he believes we should uh, follow the advice of health and medical experts. That's exactly what he did and putting in place these restrictions over the week. <laughs> Racist. <laughs> I, love the, I love the board use on this. It gets even, you remember like during the Trump years, there's a tweet for everything. There's beginning to be a tweet for everything during the Joe Biden administration, right? Because during his campaign on February 1 of 2020, he talked about President Trump, who then had a, what he called a travel ban, African ban. Right. Right. And his tweet was Trump further diminished the U.S. in the eyes of the world by expanding his travel ban. This new African ban, quote unquote, is designed to make it harder for black and brown people to immigrate to the United States. It's a disgrace and we cannot let him succeed. It's incredible. He also had a tweet in March, March 12th. A wall will not stop coronavirus. Banning all travel from Europe or any other part of the world will not stop it. This disease could impact every nation. And any person on the planet, we need a plan to combat it. <laughs> Racist. It's just, it's just insane. It's really easy to talk shit when you're running for president. 
And now your president saying you were going to crush the virus. More people have died under your administration than under Donald Trump's. Well, and it, it's quite clearly the same ham-handed Anthony Fauci bullshit that he's listening to that has created all of these problems in the first place. And, and just to give you an example, and I, Duncan, I know you've got some thoughts about this, but just to give you an example of how this administration actually isn't concerned about battling coronavirus. They're, they're concerned about the politics yeah. of coronavirus. They have still yet to nominate an FDA commissioner. That's the Food and Drug Administration, the person who is right. actually in charge of things like I don't know, vaccines right? or things like... like um, The approval of this antiviral drug that's supposed to get us out of this thing? Immunotherapies, yeah. all, all of this stuff. Like, they, they still... We're a year in. They still don't have anything. No, don't have it. And if you, you know, if you talk to people in the media and if you read the reporting that they do around COVID and Joe Biden, there's a tacit sort of admission in it, right? That, like, yeah, more people have died of COVID under Joe Biden than... Donald Trump, but he's trying. Joe Biden's trying. Trump didn't try. Trump, the guy who delivered three vaccines in under a year, that guy didn't try. Right. Right? Joe Biden's trying. And, you know, he gets an A for effort. Basically. Yeah, that's basically what they've said. I mean, that's how they paper over the fact that more people have died under Joe Biden's watch than Donald Trump. Because... (laughs) I have thrown my effort behind this... We have come up short, but I will try even more. <laughs> just got to go to the Rose Garden, give another speech. That's it. No, I mean, it, it is. It's it's just what you said, Holmes. It's the politics of COVID. It's not COVID itself. Which is why this guy's president in the first place right. is the politics of COVID. Right. Right? Because let's be honest, without COVID, Donald Trump wouldn't have been reelected. Absolutely, he would have been. Without without question, right? It was close as it close gets with COVID. So they won this based on on coronavirus, and now they're in a place where it's gotten worse. They don't know what to do. You got Anthony Fauci. I don't know. Like, how does anybody treat him as credible any longer? This guy has been caught lying to Congress on several several occasions. Lying to Congress and being wrong multiple times throughout this entire pandemic. It, and, and yet it still makes no sense to me how anyone, Puts him out on television. He was on all the Sunday shows last week. Saying, I represent science. That's why I'm getting attacked. I represent science. I mean, there's nothing about I that. am the state. Yeah. Right. You know? Like, Le- that's that's psychotic shit. L'état, c'est moi. There you go. There's some <laughs> French for you. Listen to that culture. Is that Louis the Fourteenth? Yeah. Yeah. You're the Sun King. I know my French history. Jeez, listen to these guys. I am the human Google. Listen to these guys. <laughs> But I it's didn't a, expect we got smug gone for one episode. All of a sudden, we're, we're nerding. French history. Yeah, no. Yeah. <laughs> Where's my buddy? Where's my buddy? No, but like, look, I, I, I think we've talked about this a couple of times, Holmes. But I, I, I think ultimately the reason why you can't criticize Anthony Fauci is because he told us, um, you know, the vaccine was the way out of this, oh, right? Yeah. And what you couldn't say, what you couldn't admit, although the science backs it up, is that this is a coronavirus, that the flu is a coronavirus, that they operate similarly. Yeah. You get a flu shot every year. If you're at risk, you get a flu shot every year. 
You don't get one vaccine and then you're immune from the flu forever. Doesn't work. But we couldn't say that. And the reason why we couldn't say that is because Donald Trump said it's like the flu and one day it'll go away. And he was wrong, but he was also right in that it was a coronavirus. He was right. But you couldn't admit that. Because and they still can't. They will. They won't. They will never. It'll be boosters forever. Mm. Instead of just leveling with people and telling them the truth and saying this is a coronavirus it's going to mutate. There's going to be variants, just like there is with the flu. When they give you a flu shot every year, they're anticipating a couple of variants. They put in the flu shot, and they try to make sure you're immune to it. But it's not going to last forever. Your immunity is not going to last forever because that's not how coronaviruses well, that's work. That's the thing that I never understood is the idea that the American people can't level with real information. Right, right, right. How, how you can look at the American people and say... Hey, um, the problem with coronaviruses are that once they're introduced into the world, they stay in the world. And it's up to us to try to mitigate against its effects. They couldn't tell the like truth. That though. conversation in and of itself, I think most people wrap their minds around. But here's the problem, Holmes. They wouldn't have been able to sell that at the same time they were selling lockdowns. Yep. That's the problem. They had to sell the lockdown. And they in order to sell to. the lockdown, they had to have a carrot. Yep. And the carrot was the vaccines the way out of this. Right. And it was a fucking lie. It just was. It was a lie. It was a lie. And, I, and, and I'm not anti-vax. I've gotten the vaccine. I think the vaccine is a great thing to do to protect yourself, especially for people like me and Holmes who have little kids. Right. right. But the idea that you're going to lie to the American people, you know, for now a year and a half saying this vaccine's the only way out of this thing. You're not going to have a head of the FDA. You try to shit on Ron DeSantis for promoting monoclonal antibodies, which now we want to, like, nationalize the distribution of. <laughs> like, it turns out that Joe Biden, this administration, fucked the whole thing up. It completely. It's, it's just, it's obvious, and we're not allowed to say it. Well, that's the thing, is it... We're just going to stand athwart history here and just say it over and over again on the Ruthless Variety program. Because right. Because I know everybody else gets canceled for it, but the reality is what you just said. Yeah. It just is what it is. It is a flu-like virus. It is a corona virus. It is around forever. You have to figure out how to mitigate its effects and that it comes with choices. We've had flu vaccines for a long time. Some people choose to have them. Some people don't. Right. Some people it makes them sick. Right. Some people it doesn't. You know, it's like all of these things are personal choices that you have to make with your own body and your own family. The fact that it's all become political is not the fault of Donald Trump. No. It's the fault of people like Anthony Fauci. Right. And the media, this Omicron variant, you know, they discovered. Crashed the and damn stock market. They crashed the stock market. We're shutting down flights. But if you actually listen to like the health minister in South Africa, he's like, yeah, mild symptoms is a little bit different, different sort of symptoms, no fever, right? Yeah, I mean, that's the thing that, that drives me absolutely wild about all of this is that you had a CNBC report as the day after the stock market crashed. Right. Where the South African doctor who first spotted the Omicron variant says the symptoms appear to be mild. Mild. So if they're mild, what is the new rush to go ban travel. And to, to be clear, I'm okay with banning travel. Dude, I'm totally fine with it. What I'm not fine is not having any information and then fucking Fauci's out there on the Sunday shows talking about lockdowns. More lockdowns. I, I oh, hypothetically, that might have to happen. It ain't happening. It's we're just denying reality. I'm telling you, it's not going to happen. No. 
if you may be able to lock down the bluest of blue cities again, get everybody to go sit inside with their cats and talk about, you know, French literature or whatever it is that they do on a day-to-day basis, which you do. Me and Ashbrook will join them for a little bit. Apparently have some insight into. For the rest of us, we're not fucking doing it. Right. It's not happening. I'm not doing it. I can see what's happened to my kids. I can see the just release of of positive energy in their growth and development since they've been back in school. Right. Like, I'm never doing that again. I don't care what your variant is. Right. We're not doing it. Yeah. Anyway, it is what it is. But keep your eye on this stuff. And and don't don't let any politician, whatever your state is, try to tell you that they've got the answer to that and it means more lockdown. Well, spe- uh, speaking of which, just one more thing. You know, I mean, COVID's obviously seasonal. And we're not allowed to say it's seasonal when uh, red states are being hammered by it. No, that, and everybody wants to bad policy. It's all, it's all Ron DeSantis's fault and Regeneron and these monoclonal antibodies are, are a terrible idea. And now Florida has like the lowest COVID <laughs> rate right. in the country and Michigan has the highest. And uh, no Nobody's, one's talking about Gretchen Whitmer and what a terrible do- job she's doing. Why so is that? that? Why is that so weird? Oh my God. So weird. They were going to make her vice president. The media loved her and now it's not her fault. No, it's just happenstance. What can you do? Well, I have a, I have an answer to all of this, and it, it starts by um, a interesting survey, and I think this was done in the uh, I think it was done in the New York Times. Oh wow! It was uh, your presidential choice categorized by what your first name is. Yes, I'm just going to list the first and last. The first, you're more most likely American to vote for Donald J. Trump. In the 2020 election, Dick. Yeah. <laughs> Hell yeah. And the name is Richard. 6436, a absolute annihilation uh, vote for Trump. Well, sometimes you need somebody who's going to be a dick. That's exactly right. So uh, the least likely, the most likely to support Joe Biden, Karen. <laughs> <laughs> least surprising thing ever. Uh, oh man! A resounding sixty forty Karen advantage for the blue. <laughs> That's incredible, incredible. Chasing you around the supermarket to put on your mask, you know, <laughs> filming you the whole way. They vote for Joe Biden. No surprise. They're a big fan. They're a big fan. I apologize for the conservative Karens out there. There are some. You. My mother is Karen. Yeah, I know. And she's a listener to the Variety program. Mom, my, I'm sorry. I love you. My mother-in-law is Karen, also a listener of the Variety program. Well, I she's part of the forty, the forty percent strong. That's right. holding it down, holding there. it down, and they got to work hard to try to overcome their name there. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Spe- speaking of Karens, yeah, let's hear it. Uh, how about this Canadian professor, Carrie Boussara? Oh yeah, <laughs> yes, I saw. So I know, I know, I know, I know nothing about this, but okay. I think Ashbrook has the whole rundown. Okay, well, this is from the New York Post. Canada's top voice on indigenous health has been ousted from her job after colleagues investigated her fanciful claims of Native American heritage and learned she was, in fact, a fraud. No. <laughs> it's true. It's true. It's such a recurring story. It's true. It's She's Canadian, the Canadian Elizabeth Warren. <laughs> That's incredible. So apparently it all started to unravel in 2019. When she appeared in full tribal regalia, no, draped in an electric blue shawl <laughs> with a feather in her partially braided hair to give a TED talk at the University of Saskatchewan. I, I, 
<laughs> Here I am Speaking truth to power <laughs> I, gotta, I gotta say For, for our listeners uh, I reached over to the soundboard and, and pressed the West Wing music For Ashbrook Because <laughs> that was just too good uh, It's unbelievable That is unbelievable un- Do you know what she said? What? She looked at the TED Talk audience and she said, my name is Morning Star Bear. <laughs> Tearfully. Tearfully. As the crowd cheered. Oh, God. The, the New York Post is a national treasure. I oh. mean, they're, they're, they're color. They bring out so much color and report. I, I recommend everybody get a subscription. In, 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 incredible, one. incredible stuff. What? Yeah, what what the New York Post does for this sort of reporting is what you know Peter Ducey does for you know the White House correspondence. But I guess in hearing you describe this, how is it that you get that far in full well, tribal let, regalia without doing like your own due diligence? Let me posit a theory. Okay, we have become a world where identity outstrips anything else. Yeah, any other qualification. Right? Yeah. So whether it's corporate world, I'm talking global, or whether it's the highest reaches of government, or whether it's, you know, any sort of establishment of power, who you are and who you say you are has become much more important than anything else. But to make it even more difficult for people to try to unmask rats like this is that you can't question it. Right. Why you can't? Oh, well, because you're questioning their lived experience. You can't. You uh, can't ever do that. You can't talk about it, <laughs> even even when it sounds absurd on its face. I mean, she literally she went on to say, "I'm Bear Clan." <laughs> quote, quote, "I'm Bear Clan from Treaty Four territory," as she described an impoverished oh childhood beset by violence. Come on, <laughs> no, and neither look. If not for places like the New York Post and others, people like this would have every seat of power in the world, right? But, I, I guess what's so fascinating about this to me is that, like, let's say you are a liberal and you attend this sort of bullshit and you see people like this sort of take up impositions of authority and power and claim identity that is not theirs. How is it that they don't think to themselves, oh, gosh, like maybe my entire ideology is a fraud? Well, they are. You, you know? But, like, they, but they are. I mean, they, here's the thing. The reason why the, uh, more Hispanic Americans, African Americans, right. women and everything else are voting Republican than ever have been before is because of what you're just describing. Right. Right? Right. These elites just cosplay as minorities and claim grievance. And get to positions of power where they can literally say, my name is Morningstar Bear. And people applaud. And the rest of the people in the country who are actual minorities are voting more Republican. Yeah. It's, inc- it's just incredible. Well, in, in, the ca- in the case of this Canadian fraud, um, she was actually called out by one of her colleagues. Yeah. Yeah, there's a there's a woman who said, to be quite honest, I was repulsed by how hard she was working to pass herself off as indigenous. And this is an associate professor at the school, member of Manitoba's Fisher River Cree Nation. So she's like actually legit. Legit. Yeah. He's called her out. 
Called her right out. Well, I mean, look, it, it, it goes well beyond this, right? What was the, the name of the, the woman, the trans woman, who was the, the first, they called her the first woman it, it, who had received some military decoration? This was not long ago. She, cert- she serves in the Biden administration, right? And I always thought to myself, like, as if you're a woman, how can you look at that and be good with that? How I, this is not this is bio, someone who's born a biological male, and this is somebody who is claiming to be the first right female to receive. It was like a, some general thing. It was like what Dave Chappelle said in, in Closer, where he was like, Caitlyn Jenner got Female Athlete of the Year. <laughs> right. You know, right, right, and like, and they're gonna say. Like that she's like Caitlyn Jenner deserves that more than biological women who've struggled their entire lives to prove themselves in sports environments where they get less attention, less exposure, less money. And we're and we're required to just sort of nod our heads and just, yep, not asking. No, that makes sense. (laughs) That makes sense. That's normal. Dave Chappelle's the bad guy. It's ma'am. <laughs> right. I just don't under, I mean, look, we, we live in such a mixed up world, but but that that is the piece. And I saw this this interview with a Chinese dissident several weeks ago where he was saying he was talking about the authoritarian regime in China and he was talking about all the dangers of sort of groupthink and everything yeah. else. And the interviewer basically said, now you know, what drew you to America? And he talks about all the benefits of America. And he's like, but I'll be honest, you have it here. You have the makings of authoritarianism here. And they're like, oh, really? What? That. Yeah. It's the idea that you can look at something that is a black and white issue, right? And somehow see green and red and things that don't exist. Right. And and that you all have to agree that those things exist or else you get canceled. Right. That is what authoritarianism right. actually is. Yes. It's not about some sort of tyrant that sits atop the government that dictates everything that you ought to do and not do. That's the easy form. The The form that we have that is beginning to grow in this country is that you can't make anything. You can't say the sky is blue. You can't do it. You're not allowed to do it. In fact, they revel in their ability to make it impossible for you to say the sky is blue. And the fact that they can force you to say the sky is purple demonstrates their power. It does. It's a, it's it's it, it's a proving point for their ability to control the conversation, Ugh. which is just frightening. Totally frightening, but that's why the variety program continues to thrive. That's right. <laughs> so Dems in disarray, fellas. Dems in disarray. Oh no! Uh, so sad. Uh, Washington Post is reported that Democrats midterm fears mount as policies fail to resonate with voters. Oh! Gosh, I'm so surprised. And this is the on-ramp to this that I find so funny. It's a virtual fundraiser for Kirsten Gillibrand, who's like (laughs) just an absolute trafficker of misinformation in so many ways. But she shared a blunt assessment about the Democratic Party. Democrats are terrible at messaging, she said. It's just a fact. Really? Is that the problem? It's the messaging? Can I, can I just stop us right here? Yeah. Democrats are bad at messaging because they don't actually do it. 
the media does it for the him. Press does right. It for him. Yeah. And 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 if you're a, if you're a dem press secretary, I have a lot of friends who who do that job. It's the easiest job in town, sorry to say. Somebody else is doing that job for you. Right. You you're not you're not selling your ideas to the media. They're like, "Please say these ideas cuz this is what our bosses want us to tell you to say." And then they say it and then they win and then they're like, "Oh, well, wait a minute. What do we do now?" Yeah. <laughs> but you also, you know, I don't care how good you are at messaging. How do you sell a shit sandwich? Right? I mean, what these guys are trying to sell you is that somehow spending $6 trillion that results in record-breaking inflation that has no real benefit to you or your or anyone you know, makes it harder to get a job, makes it harder to get goods and services, makes your, your paycheck worth less. All of that is a recipe for, for more of it. The, you're you're right. The the post framing has it wrong uh, to begin with. I mean, they they're saying that um, Democrats are afraid because their policies aren't resonating with voters. I mean, they're not resonating. Not it's not because their message is bad. It's because people don't want their taxes to go up. People don't want inflation to go up. People would actually like to put in an order for something and have it delivered in normal time, not like right. have Pete's blockade on the Pacific coast block every ship coming in from overseas. Pete's blockade. I love that. <laughs> I do love that. And I think like <clears throat> it's such a cop out. It's a cop out is what it is. Democrats are terrible at messaging. No, I mean, look, you guys are, you have unified control of Washington. You're a Democrat. You have unified control. You can't pass the plan you wanted. And you're going to blame your messaging. But, but, but like, take it a broader step, right? So what they're talking about is all of the things that they're intending to do will lower the cost of things for nursing homes, for schools, for all of these things. When in actuality, we know for a fact on history that it makes everything much more expensive. Right? They're admitting it now. Democrats went through the 1990s telling every single waking person alive that you had to own a home. That own a, owning a home was like the nut that, that everybody needed to do. Right. right. So we needed to subsidize, figure out how to subsidize low income home ownership. We needed right. to change lending policies right. to make sure that people could figure out how to own their first home. Right. right. Admirable goal. Sounds great. In reality, it led to the 08 housing crisis. Right. Bankrupting, damn near killing our economy in the country. Right. Ninja loans. Right. <laughs> you watch them do the same thing with education, higher education. Everybody deserves a higher education. Well, I, I'll tell you how to do that. We're going to pay for that same way we did with housing under the federal government. And we're going to make sure that we subsidize everybody's stu student loans. Right. Right. Which is basically a bailout for the top 20% in this country. What, what, Let's point that out, too. <laughs> it is. But, but, but I think even more perversely is that what happens is the school price then goes up. Right. Right? So it, 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 all it does is create a new entity, a new establishment, a new amount of, of spending that goes into a Democratic-favored institution. Right. Instead of putting downward pressure on prices whether that's the housing market or the education market, you're subsidizing them and doing the opposite. Tax what you're doing is you're creating a bubble. Taxpayers just pay a higher rate right. for a higher price for the same service that you did before they got involved in the first place. Want to take a look at healthcare? Yeah. Healthcare is a perfect example of that. The federal government subsidizes so much of healthcare that it's now a completely unaccountable piece of 
the American economy, that the prices go up and up and up. And now the only answer that Democrats have is for the federal government to subsidize those increases in rates. Right. What? We're going to make it affordable. We'll tax the shit out of you. Right. There's, you- <laughs> there's nothing affordable about it. Like they never get to the root of the problem. Right. They just try to throw cash it's at it. It's the underpants gnomes vers- version of solving problems. It is. And it's also the kind of thing that you do when you have four trust funds and you're sitting on a beach somewhere in New England trying to figure out how you s- solve a problem. Right. Throw money at it. Yeah. Throw money at it. But they get away with it because nobody holds them accountable. The press who asks Republicans questions, but Republicans on defense, uh, you know, every every headline is Republicans pounce on this, Republicans seize on that. There's nobody explaining Democratic motives to their editors. There's nobody holding Democrats accountable for the things that they do and they don't do. And this is the this is the impact. You know, yeah. they just sort of like willy nilly fight each other for the top quote in every story. They're all going to be quoted. <laughs> which it's just a question of which Democrats at the top <laughs> or who wrote it. Exactly. Yeah. And, and, and it's just it's insane. This is this is the consequence of zero accountability from our media for these Democrats who are in power. No question about it. But speaking of, I can't believe this thing wasn't splashed all over the place. Buttigieg, Pete, the Pete blockade that you just referred to. Listen to this headline. Families who buy electric vehicles never have to worry about gas prices again. <laughs> this guy is so out of touch. This guy tore down more black homes in the city of South Bend than he's let ships into this country. It's <laughs> <laughs> a base take. That's a base take. But, but in all honesty, think about this for a second, right? What he's saying is that you just buy an electric car and all the energy issues go away. No, yeah, you just plug it into the wall, and then your unicorns, you know, make your car go. The magical wall. Right. Electricity is just free. Not natural gas, not coal. Not the people you're telling to learn to code because they can't have their jobs anymore, so you feel better about your life, so you can plug something into the wall and pretend it comes from somewhere else than those working-class people (laughs) who make energy in this country. Where does the wall come from? Where does the where does the outlet in the wall? Where does that energy it's come? Unbelievable! From? You know, I hate these people so much. Oh, it's just unbelievable. I can't. I. It's hard to wrap your mind around that kind of ignorance, but but it's intentional, right? This it is. is not a dumb guy. This no, is it's not a dumb Harvard. Not a dumb guy, and it's like those electric vehicles are not inexpensive. So how does he reconcile the idea that he's going to get all these people to buy electric vehicles, which are fifty five, sixty thousand dollars? Yeah. Right. Right. And, and say, well, that's an easy thing to do. Like, just just stop being poor, and then we'll solve climate change. <laughs> and don't and whatever you do, don't take a look at your electricity bill. Yeah, <laughs> it's just he, the guy's out to lunch. It's incredible. And, and by the way, if Mayor Pete calls and says you need to go plunder every cobalt mine in Africa, <laughs> it's all in the name of electric vehicles. <laughs> Well, this next piece, Smash, I think I you would get a kick out of more than almost anything else. You recall that uh, Politico ran the hit piece on Ruthless and their magazine or whatever. But we've been talking about them for a long time, about Playbook and everything else, about how the leftward drift of this organization has created huge problems for themselves. And now the Daily Beast reported that they have actual problems at Politico with this issue. You know, a lot of the people at Politico who we've worked with through the years have moved on to other publications. There's still some some good people there, no doubt. 
But uh, I got to be honest with you, there are so many young and untested and unseasoned people at that publication, it's not surprising to me that they have all this unrest. The Daily Beast spoke with 22 current and former Politico staffers for a story. Uh, many of these sources said within Playbook, its signature newsletter product, that disharmony has been most apparent. No shit. Uh they have personnel issues that they call the woke, quote-unquote, woke police. They've driven to a divisive unionization drive. They've unionized Politico, by the way. This, yeah. was, this was the funniest part about this. I knew Mike and Jim, Mike Allen and Jim Vandehei, when they started Politico with Harris. And it was created to try to circumvent all of this. Right. It was created to try to be a best-in-class, like, complete news breaking outlet but like nimble and fast, fast. And, and, and not like legacy media and right. now they've been inundated by all the same problems that all of these publications have right before they fail yep and focused on news you i mean you said nimble you said best in class literally focused on the facts i yep. mean when they first started they were focused on nothing else but now i mean i was looking at the same daily beast story and they've got seven current reporters who talk to the daily beast and said the newsroom centers around younger, more politically woke staffers who have all the influence, especially when it comes to ensuring a more diverse set of voices in the feature. Nobody, I mean, have as much diversity as you want. We need more diversity. What we need are facts. Right. I mean, what in the world is wrong with reporting facts? I mean, like, what, what, I, I honestly, I don't honestly, care what you look like. Give me the news. I got I got to be honest with you, selfishly. For the variety program's sake, I, I opened up this article and I immediately uh, did a like a control F like to find to see if there was anything from Politico magazine. You know, the publication yeah, that yeah. attacked Ruthless. Yeah. And uh, to see if there were any quotes from the magazine. I didn't get any. No, Sally Jesse wasn't anywhere. No, from that. <laughs> he wasn't they, are, they are all very careful to say. The magazine is not is not <laughs> which I don't separate, know, man. Completely separate from us. I just want to know how many people in the magazine are part of this vigilant woke police force with inside well, the I newsroom. Think, I, I think that tells you everything you need to know. Right. With the guys who are involved in news gathering for a living are like, ah, that's not me. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and as I can tell you, for the DC insiders, you know, as talented as Jake and Anna are, and they are, uh, who they started Punchbowl. Right. They used to do the playbook newsletter, but they just dropped it one day and started a new one. And it's become the most widely read newsletter in Washington, D.C. Part of that is that these people are talented and they they cover news. The other part of it is playbook is just falling off the face of the planet. Like this is not news. There's nothing that's interesting in there. Their, their thing that was driving the day, driving the day, Omicron variant, all of these things happening over the weekend. The thing that was driving the day. Today, according to Politico. According to Politico. I can't wait to hear, I can't wait to hear this. Marjorie Taylor Greene <laughs> and her discussion I, I, with, I, I, with McCarthy. I, I, I can't even click. I don't even click because I know it's going to be a waste of time. We covered this, dude. We covered this like six months ago and we read all of the subject lines for playbook over the course of a month. And like 80% of them mentioned Republicans and like two 
<laughs> mention Joe Biden, the current president like, of the United States. They have so much talent there. Why do they waste it? They waste every single day. They waste their talent every single well, day. Well, because if you read the article, there is actual protests internally about covering news. When they cover news that, that the wokes don't deem worthy of covering, they have an internal uproar, and the managing editors have to all get together and figure out how to apologize right, for the, it. And that's the ultimate problem here, right, is that there are no editors anymore. The editors are the Slack channel yeah. of these news publications. We saw the same thing with Tom Cotton. Yeah, all right. When Tom Cotton Times. writes in the New York Times uh, to send in the National Guard to stop these violent rioters who are all around the country, he says, send in the National Guard. They publish the op-ed. What happens? Yeah, the Slack channel blows up. Everybody gets fired. People get fired. People are fired for printing a United States senator's opinion. Think about how fucking whacked that is. Maybe, maybe what we need are two separate media industries. One, to pacify woke sensibilities. And the other one for people who are just looking for, like, you know, facts right. about the day yeah i mean i don't expect the news media to write what republicans are saying my my senator man of action i, I don't expect them to say that republicans are the best or conservatives are the best how about just like write what you see give me some news <laughs> give me some news right. I, but I that's mean, the you, difference what you just put your finger on is the difference between how republican communications of people come of age and democrats come of age right right when we were young in the communications business it was all about just getting fair treatment right like you battled your ass off every single day to get fair treatment in these articles you just wanted to work with a reporter you could do business with you're going to get some quotes you're going to lose some you're going to win some but you did it knowing that there was there was fairness involved yeah you were at least i mean even if your quote was second it was still going to be there right even if your your like background bullet points were not the lead it was still included as if it was valid now it's just like, I mean, it's not even in the kicker. And Democrats will write a press release in crayon, and if it isn't stenography, <laughs> they freak out. Yeah. They lose their mind. Yeah, and cut them off. Yeah. Yeah. No, this is a bad reporter. You <laughs> <laughs> won't bad print reporter. my press release. They're so spoiled. Oh, it's they so spoiled. It, they have it so easy. Easiest job in America. I hope Democrat press secretary. Right. I hope there's Democrat press secretaries hate listening to this right now. I just want you to know that you're unemployable <laughs> outside of your current job. Well, that's job. not true. I know one who's <laughs> listening to this show, and I love him very much. <laughs> His job is to hate listen. It's so great. <laughs> it's so great. So, um, listen, I want to turn the page here quickly because okay. this is a segment that I just can't miss. I don't want to miss this. Um, if you guys, did you guys hear of this tennis star, Nick Kyrgios? No. All right. So this dude, I think he's Australian. I think he's Australian. Maybe it sounds Greek. He nah, yeah, but he's either Australian or he's from New Zealand. No, he's Australian. He's on. Uh, anyway, this is a guy who came up. For those of you who follow tennis, or even if you don't follow tennis, he's a guy that that showed up um, as a total star. He had more athletic ability than anybody on the planet. Everybody was saying like he's going to be the next big thing, right? That he he's the guy. Who's going to surpass the greats? Federer, what happened? Nadal, all Nadal, those. All, yeah. Everybody. He just absolutely collapsed. He never was able to put it together, and everybody was asking questions why. So he's done now an interview explaining why, right? His okay. time has passed. Uh, it is in the Daily Mail, and Nick Kyrgios confesses his tennis career suffered because he was too horny to, <laughs> to play. What? <laughs> 
too horny to play? <laughs> How does that work? <laughs> Nick Kyrgios has confessed that his sexual frustration left him too horny to play tennis uh, when the game took him away from his girlfriend. Wait, so his girlfriend wasn't there at the match? I don't know. So he couldn't win? I don't know, but it's the best excuse I've heard yet. I don't believe this. <laughs> no, it's, dude. Okay, so, so so you're a boxing fan yeah. as well. Uh-huh. The opposite is true for, for boxing. Right. At least what they say. It might be an old wives' tale, but they're like... The amount know, of aggression and... Right, that you, you, you in fact want to not engage in those sorts of activities before a big you know, boxing match, right? That that you actually perform better in the ring if you are, uh, you know, abstaining. <laughs> but my abstinence is supposed to be good for athletic achievement. This guy's claiming the opposite. I don't, I don't, I don't know the science here. But the best bank shot for me here is that he's like a world-class tennis player, right? He's too horny to play. His, <laughs> his, his quote is, I'm on the court and I can't play because I'm a bit horny, if you know what I mean. It doesn't matter if you're in an office job, if you're not seeing your significant other, it affects you, your work, your mood, your everything. So this is, but this is my favorite part about this construction is that somehow this guy is so horny. Yes. He can't be what everybody thinks he's going to be. And yet he's entirely committed to his girlfriend. (laughs) What a spin job. What a hilarious spin job. It's incredible. There is just no way. I mean, this is the best bullshit story I've ever heard. Yes. (laughs) <laughs> no, look, I don't believe it. I don't believe, I don't believe it. it. I don't believe it. Uh, okay, well, if you're anything like me, you spent uh, the weekend decorating for Christmas. Dude, I pulled so many tubs out of our storage unit. Like, pulling them out, seeing what's in there. Yeah. I'm terrible. very particular about it. Well, you and my wife both are very particular. Well, no, 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 no. I mean, the reason why I'm particular is that I don't like to see things linger. Yeah. The tub comes out. I say to my wife, what in this tub would you like to put in the house? We have to do this tonight. We're not going to linger with all these tubs out with wreaths. You want your house looking like a disaster. Right. 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 I get that. I get that. Everybody has one piece of the holiday season that they absolutely dread. Yeah. Right. I have outsourced my my wife does almost all of it now because whatever I do if I put some Christmas it's tree wrong. up it's wrong it's immediately wrong if I put if I put garland up it's yeah. wrong if I string lights it's wrong so it's like she's in charge yeah. she's in charge I'll help you know I'll carry stuff up or whatever but I basically just kind of like that's my worst part yeah but they asked two thousand Americans to identify the worst part of their holiday season fifty two percent said it's wrapping presents no come on that's what they said. Wrapping presents. There's a lot about the holiday season that is that is tough. Yeah. Wrapping pre- I mean, look, it's not great. Oh, no. It does suck. But it's not the worst. It's not the worst. It's not the worst. In fact, you can mitigate a lot of that by buying some gift bags. Right. I have found this to be true. Get lots of tissue paper. Yes. Buy 10, ten gift bags and then just dump it in the bag, <laughs> slap on a, 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 a wrapper or a, a some tissue paper and a gift thing and put your wife's name on it. Solves the entire problem. That is a great tip. It is. That's a great Who tip. Who needs to wrap? So they ask these, these same respondents whether what their concerns are about the holiday season. Yeah. 51% uh, are concerned about product shortages. Fair. 
56% shipping delays. Okay. And 56% rising costs. <laughs> tough bowl of soup. But That's Biden. tough. Sorry, That's Brandon. Tough. It's tough. It's, oh, we got a messaging problem. It's like, no, you have a fucking reality problem. <laughs> <laughs> totally. Totally. Well, listen, I, I want to get to this interview um, because we've got Governor Chris Christie, who, of course, is is selling a book, but he's also got some important things to say. He's a friend of the program, been a long time listener and participant. And uh, here's the interview. I want to welcome back to the program a good friend of the program, uh, Governor Chris Christie. How are you, sir? Doing great, Josh. How are you? I'm great. I'm great. Listen, uh, it's fun to talk to you no matter what, but you've got some business to do, uh, as we all have noticed. You uh, you wrote a new book. It's The Republican Rescue. Yes. Which, which no, look, I, I read it. I, I typically do like a glancing sort of page through most of these things where I'm like, is this interesting? Is this interesting? No. And I throw it out. Found yours to be quite interesting. First of all, I got to applaud you for not having the name listings in the back so nobody could do the Washington read. <laughs> yeah, I did that with the first one. And so uh, I learned my lesson. Yeah, well, that's very, it's smart because you got to read it to, to get the context. But, you know, you're when you're selling books, you got to go do a bunch of interviews and you've got to do a bunch of things in the mainstream media. And of course, they want to make this a Trump book. Uh, what I found is it wasn't. Uh, what's your your thoughts on that? It's not a Trump book. Look, the the first third of the book um, talks a bit about what's happened over the last, um, uh, you know, the last year and a half of the Trump administration and my involvement with it, because I think it's important for people to have that context. And I also think there's some interesting and entertaining stories in there, and it never hurts to be either. Um, yeah, right. But secondly, really what the book is primarily about is to say to our party, look, we lost. And we had a historic set of losses in 2018 to 2020. You know, it's the only second time in the party's history that we lost majorities in the House, the Senate, and the White House within two years. The only other time was 1930 to 32 with Herbert Hoover, right. not something that we look back on as the glory days of the Republican Party because the Democrats held the White House for 28 of the next 36 years. So what I say to folks is, look, political parties exist to win. They help facilitate winning so that then those philosophies can be brought to governing. But if you don't win, you don't get to step two. So I wanted to go through with folks first, a lot of these conspiracy theories. Um, I gave some historical context to talk about yeah. on Birch Society in 1964, in the, in the, in the mid sixties and what Bill Buckley and Ronald Reagan primarily did to rid the party of that kind of activity. And ultimately led to a great run of Republican presidencies then, starting in 1968. And then talk about things like birtherism and, and uh, you know, QAnon and Pizzagate and some of the really crazy things that have infiltrated our party, um, mostly through social media, over the last number of years that we're wasting our time on. And we also spent a lot of time on the election of 2020 and, and talk about the facts of what really happened um, and say to folks, look, if we don't stop focusing on the rearview mirror and looking backwards and we don't start focusing on laying out a plan for the future, um, Joe Biden and Kamala Harris are changing this country in ways that I think are nearly irreversible. And if we don't get in and, and speak our minds now, uh, we're not going to have the chance to reverse it and people won't trust us with authority again. Last part of the book says, here's what I think is a common sense conservative 
playbook for the things we should be talking about that are both appealing to voters and important for the future of the country. Yeah. Now, listen, you covered it well. Those are the sections as I as I digested it. And I thought each were fascinating in their own right. The, the, the first part, the little vignettes, I got a kick out of the little vignettes that you have with the president. The one that stood out to me the most was you, when you were ostensibly invited to entertain the idea of becoming chief of staff. Yeah. Well, look, you know, uh, I, I was I was brought down there. Um, I didn't know why I was being brought down there. Uh, he called and he often would do this where he would call me and say, look, I need to talk. I don't want to talk over the phone. Come on down here. I want to see you. You know, the president of the United States calls you, you go. Yeah, um, and so, and we were friends for a long time. So I went, um, uh, but I, I had a suspicion that this might be what it was about. And so I called Jim Baker, um, you know, before I, um, I went down there and said, look, I, I think um, I might be being offered chief of staff. But before I even said that, he said it. Uh, I called him, he got on the phone <laughs> and his quote was, he said, if you're calling me governor, you're about to be offered the worst fucking job in Washington. <laughs> Um, and, and, um, and I, and I told the secretary, I was going to quote him on that in the book. And he said, good. Um, so, you know, he then went through, you know, in his nineties, a list of, of eight or nine requirements that he thought I would need from commitments from Donald Trump mm -hmm. in order to be willing to accept this job and have a chance to be effective. And it's just, first of all, that part of it's just amazing because totally. there's this guy in his 90s and he didn't know I was calling. I called him absolutely cold. He took the call and rattled those off. His only question to me was, do you have a pad and a pen? <laughs> You're like, I do now. And I said, yes, sir. And he goes, good lawyer, that a boy. Um, and, and, and then off we went. And so when I went down there, I, I had these list of things that I thought made lots of sense. Um, and I told uh, Donald Trump that, you know, I'd spoken to Jim Baker um, and that, you know, he's the gold standard and Trump agreed. And I said, well, these are the things he thinks we need to agree to, to be successful. And as we talk about in the book, you know, he agreed to eight out of the nine of them. Right. right. The only one typically for, for, for the president that he wouldn't agree to was allowing me to control my own media, um, which really tells you a lot, right? I mean, cause there was a lot, as you saw, I, I reprinted the, the, the list in the book, you know, there were a lot of substantial things that he was giving me, ostensibly giving me authority over, and but not my media. He he would get to make those decisions. He made that clear. <laughs> and, you know, so I, I left the room that night. I told him, look, you didn't tell me what I was coming down here for. I didn't get to talk to my wife about this. If you think I'm going to give you an answer on a job like this where I know I'll be leaving home and I won't be home again for two years, you know. Right. I'll be home after the reelect. And so then this was December of eighteen. Yeah. Uh, I said, you know, I got to talk to her first. And he tried to press me to give him an answer right then, yes or no. And Melania intervened and said, come on, you know Mary Pat, there's no way he can give this answer. So let him go home and he'll call you tomorrow. And on the way home on the train, the, the, the great thing that happened was that it, it gets leaked to Jonathan Swan at Axios that I've been offered chief of staff. And now the only people in that room, Josh, were me, the president, and the first lady. Yeah. We were in the in the residence, um, and no one else was in the room. And so I'm saying to myself, like, how the hell did this get out? My phone's blowing up on the Excel on the way back. You know never to answer a call of any significance. The only calls I answer on the Excel are the ones where the guys are opening, offering me the home warranty. Oh, yeah, no. You get maybe warranty. eight good seconds of contact before that sucker cuts out. 
Yeah, right? And you just like forget it. I'm not because I don't know who the hell's on this train and I'm not answering these questions anyway. Right. So the next day, you know, I thought about it overnight and I just thought, you know, look, the president doesn't want a real chief of staff. Um, and I talked about the next morning, both Jared and Ivanka called. Jared called me. Ivanka called my wife to urge us to take the job. Um, and then I just decided, look, you know, I, I don't think he really wants a chief of staff. I, I don't. Uh, I think it could really wreck our relationship if I go in there. And I don't know that I can be effective because I don't think he'll let me do what needs to be done. Well, that's my that's my follow up on this is because, you know, the conditions that you laid out were imminently reasonable and, you know, at the time agreed upon. But everybody who knows you knows the way that you operate. You're very straightforward. There's no beating around the bush. You one of the only people who had as direct a conversation with President Trump as you did throughout. Um if you would have taken that job, how does that end? I mean, is that what was that your fear? Oh yeah, I, I knew how it would end. Not well. Yeah, <laughs> it's just a matter of when, you know. Like <laughs> if, if I thought that I could have effectively gotten him through the next two years and got him to the reelect, I, I probably would have taken it, Josh. But I didn't think I could, and Mick Mulvaney proved me right. He yeah. couldn't either. Um, you know, he got about a year in, and that was the end of that. Um, and that seems like everybody's, you know outside uh you know time frame i get I me mean, general kelly did a little better than that i think he did about 18 months as opposed to 12 yeah. reince did a lot worse he did like five six months so there was not a a great shelf life in that and, and everybody kind of knew that jared was the real chief of staff right. and so that's the other problem you know you've got that competition inside the building with a relative um you know so all of it made me conclude the next morning after i had a chance to sleep on it talk to my wife about it nah it's the right thing for me to do so i called called the president to tell him I wasn't going to do it. And he said, well, that wasn't the answer I was expecting. I told him I understood, but I really thought it was the right thing. And and then I said to him, you know, he said, but at least you got that good story in Axios. No. <laughs> and I said to him, yeah, by the way, how do you think that got out there? And he said, no, no, I leaked it. And I said, well, who did you have do it for you? And he goes, no, no, I did it myself. Classic. And, and Josh, Only president I had, ever. He said that I had any doubt that I had made the right decision. It was completely gone at that point because here you are as chief of staff and he had just agreed to me that I was going to lay out the political game plan. He was going to follow the game plan. And in the meantime, I was barely out of the building. Different and idea. Directly leaking to Jonathan Swan, you know? Um, so, you know, it's a great chapter because it tells you a lot about our relationship. It tells you a lot about him and his management style. It tells people about the incredibly important role the first lady plays because um, you know, people didn't give her a lot of credit, but when there were big decisions to be made, Melania was in the room yeah, um, and she had opinions to give and the, and the president listened. So I think it, the reason I did the chapter was I thought it was a great place to start because it lays out kind of where we were when we had the first loss. Cause that was right after the, the midterms where we got massacred in the house. Um, and you know, I wanted people to know kind of what the president's state of mind was then what role I was potentially going to play and why I decided not to do it. Yeah. Well, it was a fascinating bit. And you had throughout, I encourage people to read it. There's fun little vignettes like that, that I think get a good sense of your personality, the president's personality and everything around the white house, which was fascinating to say the least. There's a lot of ink, ink been spilled, but I didn't, I haven't seen as much that had as, as sort of tight a narrative as yours just did. So you, I, I, you know I, why Josh, yeah. I think it's important to make that point because there's a lot of books out where it have been, and maybe we'll still be a few more. I, I, I hope not, but I think there probably will. Um, all those books, there was no one has written a book who was in the room. 
Mm-hmm. It's all them relying upon stories from people, maybe firsthand, maybe secondhand or thirdhand, of what was going on. And I think the thing that makes this different is um, the vignettes are absolutely believable when you know Donald Trump's personality because they're true. (laughs) (laughs) Because I was actually there and watched them and participated in them. And I think people really enjoy the, the the stuff on debate prep and prepping Donald. Trump. Well, that's the other. Yeah, I was I was wasn't going to go too deeply into it, but that is. I mean, look, if you're going to read a, a piece, the debate Trump, uh, the debate uh, prep piece is fantastic, and of course it it ends with you getting coronavirus, everybody getting coronavirus, yeah. basically, and and you at one point thinking you might not make it out of this alive. Yeah, well, it was it was very scary, and you know, being admitted directly to the intensive care unit. And really for the first two days, getting worse and having to contemplate, you know, your own mortality, really for the first time in a serious way in my life and thinking about the things that you need to think about. Like, you know, what am I going to tell my kids? And, you know, I talk about in the book, you know, when they were, you know, kind of intimating to me that they might have to intubate me at some point. You know, I called my wife and I said to Mary Pat, look, you tell those doctors, if they're going to intubate me, they got to give me an hour heads up. Yeah, I need to talk to people. Yeah, I need to talk to my kids. Yeah. Because yeah. I may never get out of it. And if I don't, there's certain things I want to say to them. And, you know, you can't fit 10, 20 years of, of lessons you'd like to teach your children into an hour. But you can get the two or three most important ones to each one of them. Yeah. And, um... I mean, fortunately for me, it, it, I, I took the monoclonal antibody treatment, and I think it's really what turned it around for me. Um, mm-hmm. It was totally experimental at that point. It wasn't even approved by the FDA for a No, I know, treatment. yeah. So I, was t- I signed like a six-page consent form that was basically like, sign away your life, you know, <laughs> here you go. This um, are the tubes, I'll take this, whatever it is. I'll right, this. and I'm like, look. Put it in. Let's go because we're not doing anything. <laughs> nothing. Nothing good's happening right now with anything else. So, um, you know, that was a, it was a tough time. Um, but fortunately for me, I came out of it and never had to have those conversations. But yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, really moving deep stuff in the middle of all kinds of chaotic political thing. Yeah. The one thing that I wanted to <clears throat> to touch on is you did dedicate, as you as you mentioned in the opening, you dedicated a fair amount to what you call crazy talk. Right. And and we're talking about things like Pizzagate, QAnon. You've got chapters that are sort of dedicated to the the conspiracy theory. And in fact, why don't I just quote conspiracy theories, far fetched scenarios, evidence free narratives cooked up in someone's dark imagination. Yeah. I mean, look, when I had, I knew a bit about Pizzagate, I knew a bit about QAnon. But when I started to do the research for the book, Josh, I. I couldn't believe what I was finding out. Yeah. And so, you know, I, I that's why I decided to dedicate that much time to it. Cause it's like, people need to know where this is coming from. They can't just know like, well, Marjorie Taylor green is a QAnon devotee. Okay. Well, they hear that from the mainstream media and they think, okay, well, they're just trying to make this poor woman look bad. Right. No, 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 no. You gotta know what QAnon is and that she openly is willing to admit she believes it. Well, when you hear that, you say to yourself, what in God's name is this woman doing in Congress? Like, now look, I said this during the, the book tour last week to David Axelrod. I'm like, 
I'm not saying she should be removed from Congress. That's the choice of the people of her district. Right. They get to pick. And if they pick her, they pick her. But we have to put her in context then. She can't be some national spokeswoman for our party. You're right. Right. Well, he, he, let me just tell you what, what troubles me about all of that, because I think we have a saying on the program of, of don't take the bait, which, you know, our view is the national media always wants to make the most controversial figure, the, the spokesperson for your Republican Party. Right. Just always. And, and she has been a a top target. But when I think about the issue of misinformation, and by the way, I agree with you on, on everything that you just said in terms of, of the crazy conspiracy theories and how they actually have a little bit more grip than anybody would like to admit. But what troubles me is I also think about what we went through with Russiagate, right? And what we went with through the Mueller report and basically something that dogged the entire Trump administration that we now know beyond a shadow of a doubt was just conjured out of thin air. But the, the okay. difference was you had an entire media industrial complex codifying it to make it real life. And then and then a government in some ways that was working behind the scenes to investigate this fantasy, basically. Yep. That that troubles me in a way that that, you know, sort of the QAnon stuff kind of doesn't. Well, it does. And look, that's why I was one of the people all along who was saying this is complete baloney. Yeah. Because I was there. I was in that campaign. I'm like, there's no chance this campaign was colluding with Russia for two reasons. One, they wouldn't have. And two, they couldn't have. I mean, it wasn't organized enough to collude with anybody, you know? It was basically being run out of like a an empty floor in Trump Tower, you know, which literally was like concrete walls and, you know, like rigged, jerry-rigged heating and stuff like I mean, you know, when I got on the plane the first time in the Trump campaign in 2016, in March of 2016, on the plane were Donald Trump, his security guy, Keith, Dan Scavino, who, who does the Twitter stuff, Hope Hicks, and Corey Lewandowski. Yeah. That was it. Right. And, and I remember thinking to myself, my God, I lost to this? <laughs> it was extraordinary, right? I mean, it really was. And it tells you what the, that movement was and had become inside the party. And, and so, you know, the idea that that group, even when it got larger, um, in the post-convention period, was colluding with right. Russian agents, to me was always just completely absurd. And that's why I continue to say to people, but I will tell you, I went in and saw General Kelly pretty early on when the Russia stuff was starting. And I said to him, look, you guys need to take this seriously because these guys are out for kill. Yeah. And so don't like just brush it off like it's ridiculous because you're at war here. Um, with the media and with the Democratic Party. And so, you know, I, I agree with you. I think it's, look, it, it tells you why, you know, during the transition, I told the president-elect at the time that he should fire Jim Comey right away. Now, I'd worked with Jim um, when I was U.S. Attorney in New Jersey. Jim was the U.S. Attorney in, in Manhattan. Mm -hmm. And then he ultimately became my boss. He became the Deputy Attorney General. And I just said to him, look, you don't want to own this guy. And if you keep him, you own him. If you get it, rid of him. Because he's because he's basically a free agent. Right. And he's and he was put in there by by Obama. Right. Um, and no matter what, you know, we used to call him St. Jim. <laughs> right. I remember this. Yeah. Because, because he was the guy who, you know, who always thought that he was always right. 
You know, <laughs> it's very dangerous to be involved with anybody who thinks they're always right. Uh, completely. You know? yeah. and, and, and Comey was one, is one of those guys. He thinks he's always right. And, and not only just correct, but on the side of the angels all the time. I said to the president-elect, you don't want a guy like this there. Get rid of him. Pick somebody else. And if you do it now, no one's going to blame you for it. But if you keep him and then you try to get rid of him, you're going to wind up having a real problem on your hands. And that's well, that was pretty prescient. That was pretty prescient. Yeah, I mean, I told him that stuff. And, and look, he. I think that Chris Ray is in the process of changing the FBI. That's not an easy thing to do, but he got rid of all the Comey leadership. And there's a guy who actually has got a good head on his shoulders. So hopefully we won't see any of this Russia stuff in the future. But the way Comey handled that, the way he briefed the president-elect and all the rest of that, would just smell to high heaven right from the beginning. And yeah. I think that's why a lot of us, not out of blind loyalty to Donald Trump, but just out of experience in law enforcement, looked at this and went, makes no sense. So I understand why you'd be more disturbed about that. Yeah. And, and and we should be disturbed about that. And I think it's coming to light. And that's a good thing. We don't want the rest of these things that I read about in the book to become even more dominant in our party. Yeah, that's because fair. They do. They take away time, but even more important than time, credibility with the public for us to be able to argue why Biden and Harris's policies are so bad and why we have to be able to be empowered to try to slow them down or stop them. And yeah. That's the whole point of the book is to say, here are the facts. Like I try to lay out that middle section, the crazy talk section, Josh, like a prosecutor. Say, here's the theory. Here are the facts. Here's why the theory is wrong, in my opinion. Now you draw your own conclusion. Yeah. Yeah. No, I thought it was really well done. And look, you, you provided the facts with which, you know, almost nobody else has done. They love to castigate the conspiracy and assign its motives to conservatives everywhere but nobody actually explains what it is so i thought that was a service honestly conservatives need to know it because yeah. we shouldn't because we don't because we don't that's you know, because we don't believe any of this crap right. right so we're just like i don't need to read about QAnon because i don't i don't know what it is but i don't really believe it so they're not talking about me well they're talking about us and we need to make sure that we protect each other from this stuff and i think that's why knowing the facts and being educated about it look because when i had some friends of mine who who were telling me smart good people who were telling me the election was stolen and i gave them then the draft of the election uh chapters and let them read it they could come back to me and go i never knew any of this yeah i didn't know any of this i'm like well, well because it's not in the media's interest to educate voters right no. it's about no. it's about creating more outrage Exactly right. And that's what they want to do because outrage makes people turn on their TVs and click on their on their sites. And that's the way they make money. Let and me never forget CNN in particular. Yeah, it is not a journalism area for journalism for the most part. There's some there are some people there that I like, but not many. Um, there are some, though, but mo many of them and management, I believe, is just purely about making money. And that's no, what, no that's question what trying to do. No question. Although I, I I can't figure out how they make any money with ratings like that. <laughs> You've got some naive advertisers, Josh. We only wish that we had stupid advertisers for Ruthless, right? We get, no, I know. I mean, we've got double the audience in the variety program than we do at CNN. But you know what? I, we'll see. I guess lib, liberal corporate liberals have to advertise with corporate liberals, which you wrote yeah, about also, right? Yep, we do. And, and I thought there was an interesting section here towards the end where you're talking about what we ought to be talking about, right? Education, a big one. Clearly, that resonates deeply with people, particularly after Glenn Youngkin's victory in, in Virginia. You talk about woke corporate culture. You talk about the media, big tech. Uh, yes, 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 yes. All of that. Um, 
how do we do it though? We got to get control back. Look, one of the you know, look, the Trump administration made a bunch of mistakes. Okay, every administration does, and they have theirs. How we didn't deal with Section Two Thirty, which protects these big tech companies from being sued, um, is beyond me. When we had the House, the Senate, and the White House, right? I mean, and it's because we got lured into the idea that these folks favor us. Well, who cares if at a moment or not they favor us? It's bad law to allow groups that are now editing their sites, and they do it all the time. Um, They're no longer bulletin boards, if they ever were. They're sites that edit things just like you make editorial decisions, like newspapers make editorial decisions, other websites make editorial decisions. And all of us who do that are subject to being brought into court if we've done something that they think is violative of the law, right? Mm -hmm. Not these guys, not Twitter, not Facebook, not Google, um, not Apple. They're not subject to it um, on their social media side. And that's something that we need to, that we need to change when we get control back. Um, We need to deal with the crime issue. We need to deal with education. Um, All these things are quality of life issues, Josh, which are the things we should be talking about. That's what people care about in this country right now. They feel as if in every way with inflation, um, with crime, with the things our kids are being taught in school, that their quality of life is being invaded by a woke culture that they don't want to have anything to do with. And the only people left who can stand up and fight for them are the Republican Party. And we better stand up and fight for them because the Democratic Party is wholly owned by the woke culture and the teachers union. And neither one of those entities are ever going to stand up for normal folks. 100%. 100%. Well, listen, I couldn't agree with you more. I got to ask one more question. I've never heard anybody pose to you. Um, and it goes back to you deciding you weren't going to become chief of staff. Um, if you were, and the election happened November, 2020, do you think you would have made a difference in terms of how the next three months would have laid out for the country just by virtue of your sort of leadership and and how you sort of work with a staff and and define the the issues that were coming along at the time? I would have tried, but I fear I would have failed, Josh. And if you need any evidence of that, look at the statement the former president put out yesterday. Right? He put out a, a statement yesterday still claiming the election was stolen, now almost 13 months later, and um, challenging anybody to a debate mm-hmm. about it. Like, what are we doing? You know, Joe Biden's trying to spend another $2 trillion. We're, we're, we're one Joe Manchin blink away from yeah. that happening, right? Um, he's already spent $1.9 trillion on COVID that he didn't need. And to the extent that he did need it, he spent it ineffectively. Um, he's, inflation's up. China is on the on the run um, and, and, and causing us all kinds of problems around the world. Russia is inching towards Ukraine. The Iranians are inching towards a nuclear weapon. And we're talking about... The former president of the United States, who is ostensibly the leader of the Republican Party, is still talking about an election that happened 13 months ago that he lost, that he definitively, provably lost. And so I don't think if I had been standing there, I would have had any more luck than Pat Cipollone, the White House counsel, had, or Bill Barr, the attorney general. And and I and I just think that it's it's not it, it's it's to make yourself feel like you're even more important than you are to think that you could have stopped it. At the end of the day, the president of the United States makes these decisions. And it is clear that in his mind, he is still 
thinking this is something that we should be talking about rather than going after Joe Biden. I mean, he's sending out press releases when Adam Kinzinger says he's not going to run, right? And and says two down, eight to go. Right. Right. Like that's what we're spending our time on. He's spending his time trying to recruit a candidate to run against Brian Kemp because he actually said that Stacey Abrams would be a better governor than Brian Kemp. In what world that you and I inhabit would Stacey Abrams be a better governor than Brian Kemp? I mean, so my problem with my problem with saying that I could have made a difference, which I always like to believe I could, is I would have to say that with all the evidence notwithstanding. Yeah, right, right, right. You suspend everything you know about the situation. Yeah, like, and we're watching it happen right now. I mean, I, you know, so so for me, I think it was turned out to be the right decision um, because I think it just would have led to, you know, I think a, a, an ugly breakup at yeah. the end yeah. and, and, and not being able, I, I think I would have been able to marginally help early. But as time went on, I saw what happened with most people who yeah. was in that job or some other jobs. Um they just were given less and less freedom to do what needed to be done on behalf of the president and the country. And, and that's a problem. That management style is a problem. I have no problem in the main with the policies that were followed by the Trump administration that they attempted to implement. Um, I, I really think they were very, very solid. And you see in the book, a lot of the things that I write about in the book are things that the Trump administration either did or tried to do um, that I'm fine with. I, that's not the point. The point is you've got to be able to get it done. And we didn't get a lot of stuff done. Obamacare is still there, for yeah. instance. Like, just go through the list of things. The wall isn't built. Obamacare is is, is still there. Um, we didn't get an infrastructure package done that we wanted, so now we're stuck with theirs. Right. There are real-life ramifications for these things. And, and that's why I write the book, because if we want to be a force for good, which I think we can be, then we got to get our act together and stop looking backwards Stop worrying about the last election. Let's start worrying about the next election. And the next election is 2022, and we better at least win the House and get some more of these governorships. Get back up over 30 governorships. Then you start to see things really start to change yeah. in the country. Yeah. No question about it. Listen, Governor Chris Christie, I can't thank you enough for your time. I can't thank you enough for writing the book. It's truly a great read. Republican Rescue. Everybody ought to check it out. Uh, I, I can't recommend it high enough. Josh, thanks. Uh, tell Smug, I hope he feels better. Yeah, we'll do. Uh, and uh, and uh, hope to get on again with you guys in the future. We'll have a lot to discuss, I'm sure. You got it, Governor. Have a great one. Take care, Josh. So, um, listen, it's very it's interesting. There's the, the book is, I read it, and there's a lot of interesting part. The vignettes with he and Trump yeah. throughout the first kind of third of the a book are really pretty interesting. A lot of people, because you have to go do mainstream media like CBS, NBC, you know, ABC, and then all the New York Times, Washington Post stuff, because you have to do that, everybody took this book as like a banging on Trump. Yeah. There's an element of that. But I, when I read it, that's not what it was about, really. I mean, it was about his experience, his lived experience during the Trump years, but then also... You know, some things that we need to be honest with ourselves about and the conversations that we need as a movement, as a conservative movement, need to have in order to be a productive countervailing force. When you know the media and tech and everything else is lined up against you, like how do you break through that? And so right. I thought, you know, look, it's not popular to say any of that stuff in the conservative movement. I imagine most of the listeners are going to have a problem with elements of, of this book. And frankly, I did too. I asked him in the interview about some of it. 
but but it's an important it's an important discussion. I mean, I think so. I just wish like we could talk more about you know Jim Comey and the FBI undermining President Trump on the day that he walks into the Oval Office rather than focusing in on QAnon and stuff like that. And like, look, I get it. Like, like this sort of, these sort of fringe elements are bad for the conservative movement. I get that. Those things arise because, you know, people click on CNN.com and they say, you know, CNN says, you know, Donald Trump's a Russian asset. Experts say, right? Experts say, and we deal with that for four years. And so when we're having a conversation about misinformation, I just think we have to play offense and not talk all, you know. Don't take the bait. Right. Wring our hands about, oh, gosh, it's just so bad that this QAnon stuff. And it is bad. And, and it's not real. And we should, you know, counteract that stuff. But I don't think we can, like, leave it there. Because if we're leaving it there, then we're playing the media's game. Yeah. Which is, you know, the real problem we have in misinformation is on the right. Which is bullshit. It's absolute bullshit. I mean, these people led a four-year smear campaign about the elected president of the United States claiming he was a Russian asset, which was false. Yep. Which was false. And it was backed by the corporate media, and it was backed by the government of right. the United States, ultimately. Yes. The actual government. Yeah. Yeah. No, I agree. Listen, I think these are all important discussions to be had. I think it's important that we have them, though. It is, dude. I mean, this is why primaries are important. Like, I'm cool with primaries. I think primaries is where we solve problems as a family. Yeah. Right? Like, we're going to disagree on a bunch of stuff. That's why primaries exist. We have to make arguments, and ultimately, that's how we succeed. We don't succeed by not talking about stuff. So I appreciate that, you know, Chris Christie will have those conversations. Yeah. Yeah. Well, a good friend of the program, he's got a book to sell, and... um you know, and, and I know he's making the rounds, but I was happy to have him here today. Well, that's another banger of an episode. So, until next time, minions, keep the faith, hold the line, and own the libs. We'll see you on Thursday. Stay ruthless. <laughs> <laughs>